Your opportunity to secure the early bird discount from Umbrella 360 now hangs in the balance. All tickets purchased before Wednesday the 17th of May will save $600. Whether it's networking, cutting-edge content, masterclass sessions, or the electric atmosphere across the three days which keeps you coming back, this year's conference is shaping up to be the biggest yet. Secure your tickets by heading to mumbrella360.com.au. Albanese government delivers on its promise for five-year funding terms for the public broadcasters in the 2023 federal budget and new media businesses Disrupt Radio and Sire move to challenge Australia's traditional media structures. Both of those topics ahead of an exclusive Audioland conversation with Weber Shanwick's Global Chief Creative Officer Tom Beckman on developing earned creative ideas that connect to the cultural zeitgeist and how Swedish agency culture differs from the rest of the world. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jasmine, and joining me for the news chat today is a heavy roster. Starting off is Editorial Director Damien Francis. Damo, thanks for keeping the seat warm for me the last few weeks. Thanks for actually coming back, mate. You look uh, very tanned. Yeah, and I hope this um, sombrero is appropriate as well that I'm wearing. Uh, podcast producer and reporter Kalila Welch. Hey, K-Dog. Hey, Cal. Nice to have you back. Nice to be back. And uh, last but not least, very excitingly, in his first week, we love a podcast debut. It's Mumbrella's new editor, Shannon Malloy. A very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a very nice break. I, I did catch a little bit of uh, last week's podcast where it seemed like you lot were trying to spread a few rumors about me. Um, but I can oh, say uh, never. on the record, uh, none of them were true. What I did do, though, was um, start up a, a rival taco and margarita podcast, which you'll be hearing more about that soon. All right, falling on dead ears there. Let's crack into our first topic. Last night, Treasurer Jim Chalmers delivered the Albanese government's 2023 budget with the government following through on its commitment to supporting a sustainable media sector, as it says. Public broadcasters, those being the ABC and SBS, welcomed the confirmation that they would be moving to five-year funding terms. There were no significant boosts to the annual funding, with $1.1 billion allocated to the ABC annually and $334.9 million for SBS. Shannon, straight into the deep end for you here. You've covered plenty of budgets before, although this one was, I guess, um, you could maybe put it fairly light on the media side of things. What, what, what's your take on what was announced last night? Any, any curveballs there? No, not really. I think without even having to spend much money, what the ABC and NSBS, uh, to a lesser extent, have in this government is a friend much more than uh, the coalition that they've had for the past decade or so. Uh, what they've got is certainty, uh, if not more money, a five-year funding structure that gives them uh, a, a bit more of a longer-term uh, way of planning things. And we've already heard from David Anderson that he's developing a five-year strategy for the public broadcaster. And I guess this secure funding gives him uh, a bit more to work with. And um, Kalila, you did a bit of a wrap for us this morning outside of what we've, uh, I guess, seen on official uh, 
communications. What's the sort of sentiment been? Have we heard, have we heard anything from the broadcasters um, on the, the confirmation of that sort of extended funding term? Um, I assume, uh, as Shannon says there, they can, they can sleep a little bit easier. Yeah, you know, as, as Shannon says, um, they do seem to have a bit more of a friend in the Albanese government than they did some of the previous governments. So um, my, my understanding is that, you know, internally um, the public broadcasters are pretty happy with this decision. It's something that's been called for for quite some time now. And um, what, what we're essentially seeing here is the depoliticization of the funding for those um, public broadcasters. And, you know, it's, it's really protecting their editorial independence uh, and separating that from the election cycle. So previously they might have felt a little bit more at the whim of incoming governments. And, you know, obviously that can affect what they're going to put out there, you know, whether editorially or otherwise. And now that really does give them that stability over a longer period so they can kind of have a bit more control and feel a bit more free, I guess, to do um, or to act independently. Uh, it's also worth noting there as well, there was $5 million allocated to the AAP to support the Newswire service um, while they're developing this new news media assistance program, which promises to lay the foundations for principled, targeted and evidence-based support for the news media sector. Um, so that's just another kind of push, I guess, from the government to support a, uh, you know, independent and diverse media landscape. So I guess the, the term that um, the, the Albanese government used, I, I believe, was, remind me, was it a healthy democracy or what? safeguarding, safeguarding democracy. democracy? So I guess if they're going to title it as that, that's, that's what we'll run with. Uh, any objections there? I think uh, hopefully the ABC is um, is sh- assured with that statement from Albo that they won't be getting any more late night phone calls if they're unhappy with stories uh, like some previous prime ministers have been known to do. <laughs> and with that, let's move on to our second topic, sticking with media. The last few months have seen the emergence of a a new wave of, uh, I guess, what you would call disruptor businesses that have set about to challenge the well-established traditional media players that dominate our media sphere. Earlier this week, it was announced that former radio host Jules Lund and turned entrepreneur with his uh, influencer marketing agency Tribe would be joining the new Disrupt Radio, which is being launched under the guide of Benjamin Roberts, who's the CEO of that company, um, Broadcast Intelligence, out in Western Australia. Um, They've also managed to nab former ABC Managing Director Michelle Guthrie as its board chair. The digital radio disruptor prepares to broadcast as media veterans Chris Jans and David Eisman are also set to take on Australia's concentrated media industry with their new digital outfit, Sire, with a recent announcement of business editor at the Sydney Morning Herald and Age, John McDooling joining as its first editor-in-chief. We have, of course, covered off Sire on this podcast in previous weeks. But, Damo, let's start with Disrupt. Lund is a big-name attraction this week. Uh, he and Libby Gore are the, are the only ones announced so far as on-air talent, um, but CEO of Disrupt Roberts, as I mentioned there, told us this week the network has built one of the most diverse lineups in talk radio, both on and off the air. On initial glance, with talent being so important in radio, is the launch team the right one, do you think, so far? Yeah, look, that's really hard to tell, Cal, because I I think 
it's 50% of the game and then the other 50% is the content itself. Look, you only have to look so far back as Today FM's breakfast uh, shenanigans and the amount of top-level talent that they had uh, cycle through that breakfast slot uh, to remind uh, people that included uh, very well-known uh, hosts, the likes of Ed Cavalli, Grant Denyer, Rove McManus, Mel B, Sophie Monk, Merrick Watts, Jules Lund himself, Sam Frost, Emrishiano, etc., etc. The list goes on indeed. Uh, so the, look, the, the challenge there, yes, it's great to have very well-known hosts. Uh, they will potentially get uh, a little bit more PR on the launch of Disrupt and, and the individual shows. Then the next part is the the content itself, like I said, and, and how that resonates with the audience. Interesting that Jules Lund's Drive Time uh, show is about startups. Uh, obviously, he can speak uh, very um, intelligently about that scene, having uh, been part of a, a successful startup in, in himself and still embedded in there. I do wonder how busy his day is going to get with uh, a weekday drive time show plus tribe. Um, but I would also suggest that a couple of things, um, the reach that Disrupt will have uh, coupled with the topic of the show um, will possibly make um, a large reach um Difficult would be the polite way uh, of putting it. Uh, but hey, I hope I'm proven wrong. Yeah, that was actually, um, I guess, the second part I was going to ask you there about Demo is audience. Um, we look at, um, and we, we wrote about this on Umbrella this morning, kind of name checking, uh, I guess, both of those in what is becoming an increasingly crowded business sector or serving a business audience because, you know, uh, we've it, it's been proven that it's quite a lucrative audience. Um, we saw Forbes Australia launch last year. We have um, uh, one of the the outlets that I also mentioned was the recent success of the podcast platform Fear and Greed. That is, you know, that's built a pretty significant audience by now and that gets about 260,000 downloads a month with a listener base of 60,000 listeners. That's um, based on the latest Triton Digital Podcast ranker figures. Um, Disrupt, as, as um, it's been reported, is going to be digital and DAB plus only. So I guess I guess the scope there um, for the, the catchment of audience is not entirely massive. Um, I think importantly, it's going to be it's going to be expecting users to to come to them if they're not chasing. Um, as as Roberts told us, I guess avenues that the other radio networks have been chasing in terms of podcasting and, and the likes. So it'll be it'll be certainly interesting to see how they go about getting that audience. And as um, Ben Willie told me as well as about uh, in, in regards to this topic uh, for this article this morning, he said not only the challenge to get an audience, but getting an audience with the media agencies. Um, who are obviously going to bring in your commercial partners is going to be essential as well. Yeah, look, that's going to be the big thing, isn't it? When you talk about podcasts, the audience is essentially limitless uh, as long as you've got an internet connection, you're all good. Um, attracting that audience in the sea of podcasts, we've already talked about that many, many times before, not least at our Audio Land conference last week. We all know the challenges there, but to your point, Cal, uh, fear and greed is a nice, uh, I guess, example of, of where well-targeted content 
can work to build a community. The DAB plus situation is really interesting. So just pulling a couple of stats, and, and these are, to be fair, from GFK stats that um, CRA uh, has put out. In 2022, the DAB plus audience grew 30%. Uh, from 1.88 million to 2.45 million. And there are uh, a a number of uh, stations with a a cumulative weekly audience of over 100,000 now. But the the challenge is that's still um, not a huge uh, amount of people who will have access through data. A lot of them are through cars uh, as well. Uh, just under a million cars sold in 22 with DAB Plus uh, in them. Uh, sadly, neither of my cars have that. Um, but uh, the other challenge is the majority of successful DAB Plus uh, stations are music-based stations. Uh, so whether the DAB Plus element for Disrupt actually helps them in that media buying landscape of attracting uh, investment uh is going to be a tough one um I, I feel like the majority of the opportunity here is probably with the podcast space but it, uh, you noted in your article cal that there, there were uh call arounds uh recently from disrupt to media agencies i would be surprised if there was heavy investment uh initially uh, it will take a little bit of time to prove some audience before there's uh, some deeper investment there. And, and just a final note, obviously, we did mention Sire at the top. Um, there's a reason for that. Um, I guess details are still light on the launch of that. But as I said, they've announced a new editor, John McDooling. Um, it appears that the majority of the hiring pool um, seems to be coming from uh, Jans's uh, previous uh, playground that being nine nine publishing um the afr apparently is i guess taking a bit of a siege at the moment from the the sire project speaking to a few people around including one of the um i guess more prominent business editors currently in market national business business editors the the sentiment is that obviously the business space as for the reasons that you've just mentioned there as well demo it's it's fairly crowded and I guess the challenge here, while we still don't know the full details of what SARS is going to be offering, will be to, I guess, differentiate, differentiate the offering from the many, many um, different outlets that we, we already have uh, in market. And I guess the question there still with it being a subscriber model, as Jan said, there will be commercial partnership element, but it's not going to be an ad reliant business. How does it really make money in the short term of course you've got the backing from uh sheer water capital there as well i'm just going to quickly jump in and say i reckon differentiation is overrated i feel that it's very much about doing good shit and actually marketing it properly and then people will come but that's just me coming up with a uh, an argument against this overuse of the term differentiation when it comes to either agency work or content uh, rant over. No, I like that point. I like that point. Um, would like to hear something a bit different from you next week, though, Damo. Um, <laughs> coming up after the break, Damo's chat with Weber Shanwick Global CCO Tom Beckman at last month's Audioland. Tom Beckman, Global Chief Creative Officer at Weber Shanwick, coming all the way from Sweden. Thank you so much for joining me on the Mumbrella cast. Thank you for having me. Now, you spoke at Mumbrella Audio Land, uh, one of our conferences about Spellbound by Sweden, a 
big campaign. Uh, for those listening that don't know, it's an, kind of an audio horror fiction type campaign released, ironically, I guess, to promote people to visit Sweden despite potentially scaring the crap out of them. It's, it's quite the campaign. Um, I would love to start off with that campaign itself, Tom. Can you tell me a bit about how it all came about and how on earth you encouraged Visit Sweden to go with you on this? All right. Yeah, I mean, usually what we do in earned media and PR in general is really to find a connective tissue between the brand and something in the zeitgeist, you know, in the context, in, you know, in the real world, something that people are actually interested in. Or, um, you know, that's usually how you get people to engage and write about your stuff. And nothing exists in a vacuum, right? Like everything needs a context. And the context now, the zeitgeist now, is very much about, um, you know, occultism and mysticism and, uh, you know, what sign you are and, um, and witchcraft. And so that's been going on for, for a number of years. Also, one of the key drivers in the entertainment industry since, you know, a number of years is horror. Because... Um, you know, on the one side, like comedy or what makes you laugh in one country is not necessarily will make you laugh in another country. Comedy doesn't travel. So in a, in a global media and entertainment market, horror is something that is a, a growth driver because, you know, what makes you scared in Australia is also what makes you scared in Sweden. So there was a lot of things, you know, that was, you know, the stars were aligned in the sense that there was, a, there was a demand for this idea, there was a market for this idea. And also Sweden has, like, has a lot to bring to this topic. There's a lot of spirits uh, living in, 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 our, in our woods uh, and, and a long tra- uh, tradition of, of myth, mystic, mythical creatures. Uh, so it was time perhaps to capitalize on that. So it was a good it was a good connect uh, between the brand and the, you know, what people were interested in or, or themes and trends in the real world. And we'll put a, a link to the, the trailer of that uh, in the description for, for the podcast. And a, and a quick note, uh, apologies for any background noise, but I think we're at the noisiest hotel in Sydney at the moment with the background construction going on at the moment, Tom, so apologies for that. No, no worries. <laughs> but... Look, one of the things you spoke about as well in the presentation, which I found interesting, and I'd never heard this concept before, but maybe that's just me living under a rock, was the deja vu swapped around to, to be Vujade. And the, the, I mean, it's probably better to, for you to explain it, but can you give us a bit more of an idea of that, that concept and why it's important for advertising? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember where I stole it from, but it's, you know, it's a semi-established concept, like a deja vu backwards. It's that a vujade is that weird sensation when you walk into a situation you've been a thousand times, but suddenly see something new. Uh, That's a vujade. And it's basically, it's, it's a concept of, you know, taking a step back and seeing something with new eyes, which is really helpful in business and marketing. And that's, that's actually like the fundamental reason why brands hire agencies in the first place, because usually they know their own brand and their own business better than agencies. But sometimes you need an outside perspective in order for, for you to see your own business with new eyes. 
so, so that is like a, a, a Vujade moment or experience is something that I try to have with all the clients that I work with. And it's something that I encourage with all the teams that I work with. But it's basically to take a step back and, and see, see the brand or the company, not for face value, but what it could be. And uh, to give you an example, and I can talk about this now, I think, guess because the brand doesn't exist anymore, at least in my market, Metro was, was like a, a, a newspaper that was handed out mm -hmm. in subway stations and bus, bus stops, right? It was a Swedish brand. It started in Sweden. And I remember I was, I was having this workshop with, with the management team for Metro. And all the, these are pretty tough business people, you know, the, uh, the organization, the company behind Metro, like they, they, uh, they don't take prisoners. So I was kind of nervous in the first place. And then, you know, all the CEO and the, you know, the board was there. I was super nervous. And we, I, we started the workshop with, with this simple question, um, what business are you in? And it was this awkward silence. And I felt like, ah, oh, this is not going well. And then the CEO said like, well, we're actually in the democracy business because before we arrived, only middle-class and upper-class people read the morning news. Now go into the subway, go on any bus, and you'll see everyone is reading the morning paper. We're in the democracy business. And someone else said, well, that's a fair point, but we're actually in the recycling business because we started handing out free newspapers and then, you know, we also needed to invent the system to recycle them. And now all mm. newspapers are recycled, but we were the first, like we kind of invented that system. We're in the sustainability business. Someone else said like, well, you know, our product is really short stories. We do that better than any other media outlet. You know, that's our business. We were telling the short story. This was before Twitter and, and, and uh, you know, the seven-second uh, video. So you get the picture, like, in 15, 20 minutes, we had a really interesting kind of vujade discussion about what business are you in. And depending on what you pick, are you in the democracy business? Mm. Are you in the recycling or sustainability business? Are you in the short story business? Someone said, like, we're in the, you know, in the urban business. Urbanization is the biggest movement of our time, and we're in more metropolitan areas than any other brand. That's our business. That's our readership. You get the picture. Suddenly, you have a lot of different paths that you can go down, and all of them are super interesting, and, but they will define what kind of talent you should hire, you know, your service or business development, your marketing strategy, your branding, everything. So that is, that is just a very simple, healthy exercise for any company to have on a regular basis. Just get your, some, some central people together in a room, ask yourself, what business are we in? It's just as simple as that to kind of get going, to, to kind of practice, to have these bujade moments or experiences mm. with your own business. And do we do that enough, Tom, particularly, I guess, our own industry, advertising agencies, uh, media brands? Are we doing that enough? Um, I don't know. Um, I, I'm sure there are good examples of that. And uh, the media industry is obviously evolving very fast. Um, and you look at what's been going on only the last, like, five, seven, eight years with with the rise of, you know, consultancy and, 
you know the rise of you know entertainment mm. uh, and and the rise of you know in-house and the rise of remote work and all like these kind of major shifts that is changing the way brands and agencies operate there is I mean there is no shortage of change and and somehow a lot of agencies are still around so I guess you know people are adopting and people are looking 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 at themselves I guess I hope I think um, but then again there are some things that for some reason you know some challenges for agencies for instance that you know are still around like like uh, business models or like we're still getting paid by the hour and uh, like and you know people are still complaining about pitches or like <laughs> there seems to be a lot of issues that is you know uh, tough to tackle perhaps but, but like, hey we're not victims mm. people working in this industry are usually you know in a good place especially now like in in term in times of recession a lot of people are hurting you know bad and I think I read somewhere that 20% of all Brits now live under the poverty line. So mm -hmm. one-fifth of all Brits this evening needs to choose between a warm house and a warm meal. That's tough. Mm. Right? So, yeah, there might be some problems, you know, agency side, but I think we're okay. I think we're okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, definitely when you put it in that context. Uh, Let's, let's talk about that in terms of the environment. Um, you know, in Australia, obviously, we have very close relationships with the UK in particular right. uh, and some connections with the US as well. A lot of our industry locally is from the UK. Right. Um, you know, you're you know, in Sweden geographically, you're very close to the UK. Can you tell me a little bit more about the, the, the Swedish advertising scene or is it more the Scandinavian advertising scene. How do you? How does it operate uh, in your part of the world? So in general, like Swedish management is very flat. There's not much hierarchy going on, and uh, usually, you know, uh, you're pretty protected as an employee, which means that you are allowed to make mistakes. So overall, it's it's a it's a it's a healthy environment for anyone in a creative industry because you um, you are encouraged and you're allowed to take risks and you're you're allowed to fail and also you're invited to the table usually it's not like you have you know the more the american creative model or management model is basically a pyramid you know with the pope on top and then just like all the slaves pushing things up the pyramid and then someone at the top decides like yay or nay I mean, I have a lot of issues with Swedish culture. Don't get me wrong. This is like, I don't even, yes, I have issues with Swedish culture. Like, don't, yeah, I work for Visit Sweden and, you know, you should go and experience all the, you know, the spirits in the forest. You should do that. But don't get your hopes up because, <laughs> you know, it's, every culture will have their issues. But I will say this, Swedish business culture and management culture is actually very strong in an international uh, comparison and I know now I've been in a global role for many years and so I've experienced the business culture in many other countries I grew up on American management literature and you know I went to business school I read all the books and you know I took them very seriously and very you know all the kind of up or out type like 
concept and everything, right? And then I get to America and I find that sometimes they're not reading their own literature mm -hmm. and they're so most into American management that is about risk aversion or, you know, hierarchy or agendas and politics. And because you get that in big cities like New York or in big companies. And, and also when you're not safe, you know that you can get fired at any point and, you know, you make a mistake in your career and you're damaged goods and your career has another trajectory all of a sudden. Like this is not necessarily a good environment for, for creatives and it's not a good environment for business. So, but that, yeah, that's my point of view. But, but, but Swedish management, and look, look at all the international Swedish brands. You know, there are mm. they're hundreds. Yep. That's really interesting. A very interesting business structure. I wanted to ask you about, uh, and I'm going to return to the, the realistic, uh, I guess, um, idea you have of, of Sweden, which I find fascinating. But I want to just quickly talk about creativity in Sweden right. as well, because it seems like what you've explained is a good foundation for uh, great work if you can make mistakes, if you can have little fear of repercussion, etc. Um, how do you think creativity uh, weighs up Sweden versus the, you know, the rest of the, the Western world? So, and I think it's pretty known, right, in our industry, there are a handful of nations that are usually punching above its weight, mm. you know, in the creative industry, or at least in, you know, in marketing comms and advertising the media. Australia is one of them, and New Zealand is one of them, Sweden is one of them, uh, the Netherlands, Israel, um, I mean, there, the Egypt, there are nations that are known to be creative or, you know, at least punching above its weight. Um, so, like I said, for Sweden, I think there, you know, some of the reasons are because of the management culture and the, the fact that people are, you know, encouraged and allowed to make mistakes. That's, it's, you know, it's a collaborative thing. And also because now society is not getting less complex. It used to be, you know, you go back uh, in our industry and like people thought that, oh, oh, the best ideas are found in man caves, right? And I'm not sure that that's the case anymore, right? You morning news, you need to be updated what goes on in society. And because business, culture, politics, technology, they're all intertwined now. They're all bleeding into one. So you have to be informed. You have to be on top of what goes on in society, in the real world. You have, someone said, you have to play in the jungle, not in the zoo. And we used to play in the zoo because that was our silo. It was mm. called advertising and marketing. And it was kind of this made up world where people like you and me would like play around, you know, and it was safe and nobody cared and it didn't really matter. And now we need to play in the jungle because, you know, before, you know, a bad campaign was a campaign nobody noticed. Right? Now a bad campaign will take a brand down. More at stake you have to know what you're doing and you have to understand the, the real world that you operate within, which means that you need to involve more people into the creative teams. And so that like you, you need more diversity in, in the teams uh, that will put together recommendations to your clients. And I think 
there's an important distinction between ideas and recommendations, and it's getting more important. I don't, uh, I don't care much for ideas. You know, if I want ideas, I go to my kids. You know, like I would never pay for that. But for some reason, we think that you know that's the product ideas, mm. and then we go to clients with like five, six, six things, and like we can do this or we can do that or like what, what about this? What do you think? And like a buffet of things. What is that? Ideas are cheap, right? Recommendations, on the other hand, is that when you walk into with the one or two things that this is our recommendation based on my experience, my knowledge, and my know-how of your industry, of your brand, of how this industry works. This is what I recommend you to do. We need to see more of that in our industry. And that's why, you know, consultants are getting paid much more, right? Because they have that gravitas and they will walk into a meeting with the recommendation. While we are more order takers, and you know, especially in the UK and the US, uh, agencies will will like any anything that the client will say, the agency will like, yes, ma'am, let's do that. You're absolutely right. Which is, which is a type of client service that is not necessarily good for clients or agencies, and it's certainly not good for recommendations, mm. then you end up with ideas. Yep. Which is a fascinating point uh, because you would potentially even argue it's not necessarily even a service at all if that the recommendation you're potentially going to provide is only to say yes to whatever the client actually wants, which kind of goes to your point, is something that in Australia in the US and the UK we have seen for, for many, many years, depending on the client agency relationship, of course. Um, some agencies are more willing to step forward and uh, be brave, if you will. Uh, I guess the other side of that is some would say that they're just doing their job to give those recommendations rather mm-hmm. than uh, sit on the fence or nod and agree tirelessly with a, with a client. How do you get out of that uh, I guess, vicious cycle though, especially when, uh, I mean, you, you sort of alluded to it before, we're in a, a challenging set of circumstances uh, economically, different uh, circumstances in each country, but, you know, relatively similar yeah. uh, across the board. Uh, in Australia, we're in a period at the moment where there is a significant amount of large clients in particular who have gone out to pitch to look for a, a better deal or shave a little bit of money off the retainer right. or uh, change up what they're doing. And generally speaking, off the record, it is we, we need to, to cut down costs right. a, a little bit. Uh, on the record, it's definitely not that, but this is what, you know, the, the sort of scuttlebutt is uh, at the moment, if you're familiar with that, with that term. But... Tom, how do you how do you possibly follow through with that idea of providing recommendations, being that trusted mm-hmm. partner to put that brave foot forward, provide those recommendations, and, and firmly say, in our belief, according to our research, with our expertise, mm-hmm. this is what you should do. When you may know, you know what, that's not what they're thinking, that's not where they were going, and there's a lot of 
uh, money at stake potentially, yeah, yeah, a lot of gravitas at stake, right. a lot of reputation at stake. Yeah, and like obviously I don't have all the answers and it's easy to kind of like fly in and like say all these fancy things and fly back to safe Sweden where it's illegal to fire people and I'll be safe and you're exposed, right? I'm not saying that I have, like I can teach anyone how, how it's really done. That's, that's not the point. Uh, and, and usually the first lesson you learn in consulting is that you get an assignment, you, you do your homework, you go back to the client, you tell the truth and you get fired because you have to earn the right to tell the truth. You have to earn the trust. And it's, you know, it's, this is a trust game that we're playing. And it's just, that's the, you know, the first thing you need to establish, you know, in any relationship, whether that's a professional or a private relationship, is trust. You know, and, and, and you need to prove someone to, to someone that they can trust you and, and what you say is valid and makes sense and, you know, is, is relevant. So it's, it's always a relationship game. But I, I will say this, I, I, spend, I spend a lot of time uh, working in bars and attending, you know, and serving in, in restaurants. Is this your, your after-hours uh, job? No, this, yeah, well, I mean, I matured late. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I had a lot of, you know, failed careers before I, for some reason, ended up in PR. It wasn't my first choice. <laughs> but, but, but this is the point. Like, for some reason, restaurants and bars have a much more professional relationship to client service than professional service firms, than agencies. Mm. Because... Usually what happens when a customer comes into a restaurant, what happens is the customer will say, I want the Caesar salad, right? Because that's what customers order. And a good waiter will say, that's an excellent choice, right? But a great waiter will say, that's an excellent choice, but if I were you, I would have this, you know, this roti, and like with this, I would have, you know, with this wear pine, like uh, wine pairing and blah, 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 right? Because a great waiter understands that it's his or her job to serve the best the house has to offer, right? That's how you get the customer happy. That's how you get the customer to come back. That's how you get the customer to, to talk about your restaurant. That's how you grow your business. The customer doesn't know. The customer doesn't know, you know, what, what we're serving or like who's the chef. Or the customer doesn't know anything. The customer only know that I've had Caesar salads a hundred times before in my life and it worked. Right, so that's what they order. Go to any restaurant and ask. You know, what 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 do people want? They want Caesar salads. You know, in our industry, it's the same thing. Like the the client comes in, is like, I want this, and we're like, that's an excellent choice. Instead of like, that's an excellent choice, but my job is to make sure that the client gets the best the house has to offer. Right, that is going from ideas to recommendations. We're about to run out of time, but I wanted to squeak in one more question. I sort of alluded it to uh, before. You've come all the way to Australia, to Mumbrella Audio Land, to talk about the campaign for Visit Sweden. One of the things that I found most amazing talking to you was your uh, realistic approach to Sweden and your idea of Sweden uh, and how you felt it was perceived and the realities uh, of it, uh, which you don't get very often. And by that, I don't mean you were disparaging towards right. Sweden or anything like that, but you were very realistic. Here are the positives, here are the negatives. Right. Here are, you know, here is why would you, you would come and you've got to be 
wary of these things right. as well. Every country has them. But you were very upfront uh, about that. Do you think agencies do that enough with their clients? Are they realistic enough about how they genuinely feel about the clients they work with? Because especially today, there is a lot of talk about that perfect marriage or more ideal marriage between a client and an agency. And I feel it stems from a realistic assessment of your, I guess, thoughts and feelings about that client. Do we do that enough? I, I don't know if we do that enough. And I think, again, I, w I really want to underscore that. It's, it's a trust game and you have to earn the right to tell the truth. And I, it's easy for me to like come in and like, you know, you know, get on stage and say fancy things that like, but I do, but I do think it's this and I, and I'm, you know, Norway is much more beautiful than Sweden. Everyone knows that. Like the, the tourist organizations know that, all the people know that, like they have the ocean, they have the fjords, they have the mountain, they have the scenery, they have that. We don't, right? But um, we're, Swedes are smart and you know that we have nature. We just need to add a layer of culture to nature. So we enhance the experience. If we have pine forest, we need to put that into a context or add another dimension to it for people to appreciate it. And if we're successful, that pine forest will be much more breathtaking than any fjord or any mountain or, or, or any ocean. And, you know, that's just the beauty of imagination. And, you know, tapping into that, that's really what the creative industry is about. And the fact that we have this rich tradition and culture and history of all these spirits inhabiting our woods it's just an untapped opportunity especially in a time where people are very much interested in witchcraft and and spirituality and you know what signs you are and mercury retrograde or whatever it is right it's 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 a big thing so it's just it's just there for us to to work with um i, I don't i don't think that you know it's not like when i have or anyone else have a conversation with like the any tourist board of Sweden like we we know what the competition is usually you know like most brands know and playing into it or at least using it as a starting point to understand where you can win that's just the basics of positioning and and branding and and so I'm I, I don't think that you know me I'm doing anything different uh, maybe it's more like because I don't know Australian culture, but you know what my experience from UK and US is like. Sometimes you know you never know what people actually mean, mm. right? So it took me a while when I was working in New York. It took me some time to understand like this is actually what people are saying to me. Um, and and Swedes, you know, it's a bit of a different culture. Like usually, you know. They're more like the Dutch, like you will know. People will tell you. And I'm not saying that that's better. I'm just saying like in a business environment, sometimes it helps. Mm -hmm. Tom, we've run out of time. Uh, huge appreciation to you for coming all the way out to speak at Mumbrella Audio and to be on the Mumbrella cast as well. It's, it's been great to have you here. So thank you for joining. Oh, thanks for having me. 
And that's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening to the Mumbrella Cast. Throw us a follow or subscribe if you're enjoying. And for more podcast content, we'll be back tomorrow with the Evening Mumbo. Thanks again to Tom for joining us at Audioland. And thanks to you lot as well, Damo, Kalila, and Shannon. Cheers, bud. Thanks, Cal. See you next week. Yeah.